Hey everyone, welcome to the first edition of Cult Following, the new podcast from the people who bring you cult classics every month at the Pollock Tempe Cinemas. Visit Cult Classics AZ for news on our, all our screenings or Facebook, Cult Classics AZ. I'm Victor Marino. I'm going to be one of the hosts here today on our first podcast. And joining me today are Kirby Nelson and Adam Rukowski. So, what, you guys, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Let's start with Adam. Huh, what, me? Hello, hi. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, Adam. Uh, what would you like to know? Uh, just a little background for our viewers, listeners, or raconteurs who are listening. Uh, well, I'm originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I uh, moved down to Arizona in 2007 uh, and then got uh, pretty much hooked up with, uh, with the likes of you guys. Uh, big film buff, big music buff, just overall just a big media buff. And uh, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Got three kitties, got a wife, and we're living well in Arizona. Arizona. All right. Adam is also one of our volunteers at Cult Classics. If you ever m- mention our visit our merch booth, you'll see Adam there. So say I hi. give surly looks and t shirts. Surly. And one of our other volunteers at Cult Classics is Kirby. Kirby. Yeah. Kirby, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners. <laughs> well, yes, I'm a, another fine indentured servant at Cult Classics. Uh, volunteer doesn't seem to quite encompass that enough uh originally from the northwest also a uh like so many other folks in arizona a denzian of uh california moved out here been in the the desert about a decade uh former music journalist eternal roadie uh currently the vocalist of splatterkill a horror focused death metal band here in the valley as well as uh our lovely uh christian rock side project of grind known as vaginal backwash and then uh used to do you you said christian right oh yes very much so definitely always yahweh both are for uh definitely for bar mitzvahs children's parties weddings and then uh doing a little bit uh fortunately uh it's not as up and running as it used to be, but always uh, helping out with ICanSmellYourBrains.com, doing my own uh, DIY horror fanzine called Fake Blood, and uh, glad to be here as part of this podcast. Yeah, and as these uh, podcasts keep going on, I think we'll learn a lot more about Kirby and Adam and myself. As for me, Victor, um, you know, I'm a local local entrepreneur of the film variety i program cult classics we've been doing that now for three and a half years originally from california moved out here for uh to go to law school at asu and then graduated and just showed movies instead of sent people to jail or freed them or whatnot um you also see me at a lot of horror conventions and comic cons in the southwest shilling uh illustrated prints that's another topic we could talk about in the future along with music and our various interests but today i think we're going to start talking about something that's very close to all of our hearts we're going to talk about what makes a cult classic versus maybe an underground gem i think a lot of people who come to our shows have over the over time done podcasts or sent us comments like why are you showing x movie or this movie that's not a cult classic what are you guys thinking that's insane you're crazy so <laughs> a little bit you know uh, and that's just your volunteers saying that oh yeah exactly you know i i, I sometimes i just refer to the voices in my head but uh today we're gonna just sort of hash out among ourselves like what makes a cult classic a cult classic versus just an underground gem and uh you know kirby let's start with you this time what do you think is the uh last movie you saw that fits into that cult dynamic Mm, well you know with cult classics i feel obviously i wouldn't be doing my part if i didn't say what we show our cult classics but it's interesting i always look before i answer i think getting to the the meat of the matter um is is that people it's interesting to go to outside parties people who are not involved in film or in its underground um scene that people feel have very strong ideas about what exactly makes a cult classic when i was growing up 
uh, you know, it, it definitely took some time. And now it feels like things happen a lot faster. I mean, I definitely think it's one thing to talk about. But even more importantly is, is that people, it's like if a film is successful, they don't think it's a cult classic. And then if it's in any time period, and then if it's, um, you know, something that's really that they consider it's either critically bad or a commercial failure, they're not sure of where to put it. So even that even affects me as I wonder sometimes when I go and see films, uh, both uh, new in theaters and repertory, if it's actually considered a cult classic. And I can't even think right now off the top of my head what I would consider the the most recent film um but but you know what something you always well you've been hearing more and more i would say maybe over the last like maybe 10 years maybe 15 years instant cult classic yeah so if even it before be, it just add out. water in an audience right so, or that's that's like a marketing tool now yeah yeah i have heard that too before and I, that, that's one of those terms it's kind of i mean does that get you out to see the movie I, I don't so? think it does for me personally, because um, at that point you're you're just. When I hear instant cult classic, I think, well, this means this movie is like a movie that everyone universally accepts is a cult classic. I mean, if I'm talking specifics here, um, I remember a few years ago there was a Repo, the genetic opera. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, oh, instant cult classic. And it's like, okay, because it's sort of science fiction and it's sort of musical. So it's sort of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I'm not going to say I don't enjoy that movie. I, I have it on DVD. And the people who made it have gone on to make sort of similar films in, yeah. in that sort of vein. A lot of times I think when I hear instant cult classic, it's a short term for studios. When they have a movie, they don't really know how to market. Right. Which, again, Repo the Genetic Opera would be a good example. If you see the trailers for that that Lionsgate did for it, they're very much like a new vision of terror from the people who brought you Saw 4. <laughs> make sure you Re- Claw. <laughs> the claw when you do that exactly. but that, we are doing the claw you just can't see it but that's an important part is the pedigree and with that it was Darren Lynn Bozeman who did and had um, Bill Mosley from Texas Chainsaw 2 and a lot of Nevik Over from Skinny Puppy was in and they touted Paris Hilton just for that extra layer of um, you know uh, it's 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 got it's such a unique flavor but the big part of that was that these they've done horror and they've 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 shocked you with this but now they're they're going to step outside their lines and anytime a director or, or a screenwriter does that there instantly is that idea that this is going to be a cult classic yeah so basically the thinking there was like repo was going to be like phantom of the paradise or rocky horror picture show because that's the closest like amalgam they could find to this is what this movie sort of is but not really but we don't want to you know looking at the pedigree this is the guy who made the saw movie so we want to get that audience to come you know and you know you could look at it and say well in the end did repo actually become you know, a cult classic. It was four wall. It does have like a dedicated fan following and it didn't really do well at the box office, you know, but there was no time element, you know, involved. It just sort of became well, then one you, overnight. One thing that I keep thinking about, or as, as you were talking about that, and you know, not to, to harp on the repo thing, but with, with the mentality behind it, I remember back in maybe the mid nineties ministry had a popular quote saying sell out first do what you want afterwards to paraphrase Mm -hmm. and i feel that's what darren and the the crew are doing is you know they did the saw movies which were highly successful and now they're doing their own thing you know and even with um, devil's carnival you know they have a second one that's coming out but they're doing it you know diy yeah and that's a big part of what i would pose to both of you and our our audience is definitely the idea of, um, you know, in the, the traditional cult classic sense, you have both um, Hollywood pictures that fail big money mm-hmm. makers that didn't deliver at the box office. But even with a lot of uh, like repo, but we can go way beyond that with a lot of films now 
is they're using like a, a crowdfunding or they're building an internet-based buzz and they're saying, well, we made this together and that's how we're creating like a cult film or, or a cult following is based on that ideal. I mean, does that ring true? Because that's what I see in advertising, whether subliminal or blatant. Well, it's interesting, like you mentioned, the crowd funding thing, because, um, I mean, one example you could look at sort of like that is uh, um, years ago, there was a, a sort of a, sh- a TV show on UPN. It's called Veronica Mars. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it had a lot of people who ended up being kind of famous now, you know, like Amanda Seyfried and, you know, a lot of those sort of people. Um I can't remember the main girl. <laughs> Kristen Bell. That's yeah, Kristen right. Bell. Thank you. Um, and it was popular, but it had like a niche following because it wasn't a genre property. We call it a niche following. And uh, it came out like a few, like a year or two ago where uh, the creator of the show did a Kickstarter to sort of make a movie out of the show years after it you know, been canceled. And, the fans for that property sort of rallied behind it and it became a, you know, they met like the budget in like one day and it was like a million dollars or something. And even though it wasn't like a genre property, you could argue in, you know, the same vein. Well, yeah, it had a cult following the following behind it rallied the show and the show ended up making money. On the other hand of that, there's Zach Braff who did a movie, uh, few like years ago called garden state same kind of thing had a big kind of following among sort of the proto hipster set had a very uh influential soundtrack with the shins and a lot of these like you know alternative bands um you could argue that movie didn't age well i would argue that movie didn't age well (laughs) (laughs) and um he did a kickstarter based thing for his next sort of navel gazing movie and it was kind of universal wait a second navel gazing yeah, i was just gonna say you know like introspective i'm a 30 something hipster or did, did you just coin a phrase no that's a real phrase oh, okay yeah you know shoegazer whatever right yeah i just i've not heard of the the navel gazing yeah no no it's it's established we can look it up okay it's on urban dictionary Dictionary. yeah then 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 that's all that matters yeah yeah exactly but basically what i was getting at is even though these aren't genre properties one of them the veronica mars one was pretty much seen as okay that's cool the the following behind the show went and they made this thing happen for the show and rallied the other one was like this fucking millionaire oh my god he could have made that movie anywhere and he had to go to kickstarter fuck him you know so a lot of times what what defines a cult classic could just be the audience reaction to the people involved you know but i think though too with like the zach braff Mm -hmm. it's it was all him yeah directing writing producing like you know it's like kind of his baby project as opposed to veronica mars was like a group effort yeah out of the love of a series that was already established Mm -hmm. uh same thing with like firefly yeah i mean you're not going to look at them and and start pointing fingers you know like what a bunch of assholes Mm -hmm. for you know trying to get this going again you know with other people's money even though they didn't do that because serenity was before you know they were doing the, the crowdsourcing but um yeah, I don't know. The, the Veronica Mars, it was fan service. You know, yeah. they were doing it for the people that loved the show. I watched it with my wife. I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. I was like, I don't know these people. I'm I'm kind of familiar with the premise of the show, and that's it. All it was completely just fan service. Yeah, well, and a big part with like a Veronica Mars is it's a lot easier to do a uh, funding for that where you don't have some massive special effects budget. Right, and but in. by the same token you also have to have like victor said the participation of those stars the interest of them because if Mm -hmm. they've gotten too big or outgrown it uh in whatever sense you want to look at it they they really have to be interested and that so it worked for that yeah but i mean for me one of the things i think the veronica mars brings up a great point is is that and also kind of to what he was saying with like lionsgate promotion of some of their films is i think it kind of goes on that it's interesting uh in in my childhood and teenage years how many shows became cult classics over time but how now they are marketed as cult classics like television 
is at an absolute zenith of creating cult from the beginning. I mean, this is AMC and FX and all the cable networks, the pay networks. This is their bread and butter now. Mm -hmm. This is how you make money is creating modern serials. Yeah. And And if you look at that, not to cut you off, but I mean, you know, the grandfather of all that's sort of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, I remember when I was watching that show when it came out and reading, you know, the critics that was like, oh, this show is serialized. There's no way anyone can jump into it. And now literally every popular TV show today is serialized. You won't find like, you know, uh, very you'll find very few shows that don't have some sort of overarching season arc that's kind of followed through episode by episode. Yeah, not unless it's just, you know, a, a- cookie cutter sitcom or something well, I was to say, even a sitcom now has a huge amount mm-hmm. of backstory and and cliffhangers oh, yeah. you have you, to have so much you could not go into episode five of the last arrested development and try and think you know what's going on yeah and if you look at arrested development it's another one of those shows that's considered like a cult show and just to kind of tie it into like the the, the main discussion we're having i mean and Kirby had originally sort of mentioned this in passing. It used to be uh, something was one of the ingredients of something being a cult classic was like, you know, a lot of time had gone by since it was popular, but it still sort of retained this following. You know, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show came out like in the 1975. I think somewhere around there. Yeah, another stage play before that. Too. Yeah, yeah, and it, it retained this huge following as like a uh, a, a movie like being played on the midnight circuit for years and years i mean the same thing with like a clockwork orange or like el topo or the holy mountain it's like you could you know these you can only see this movie on certain days or you know, throughout the years it wasn't that accessible thing with tv shows unless there was something with like reruns it's like it built this following and then whenever you could find like somebody who had like a bootlegged vhs or something then you could like relive it mm-hmm. um as technology has gone on you know something doesn't have that like you know time to sort of like wind to age you know it's like it has to instantly build a following or else it's not going to be like a cult thing in tv shows you can miss out on because there's so much entertainment now you can miss out on the first airing of a show because of you know streaming or dvds it's like oh my god you need to watch this show it's so awesome here's the box set or here watch it on binge it on netflix you know when you used to have a very I mean, you know, there's no way we can start a podcast or anything else or any kind of show without discussing the effect of the internet. I mean, when you talk about it, it's a great point that you brought Victor about, you know, having the old bootleg tape trading and the uh, going to a convention and being shocked at finding a television show and you'd have some sixth generation warped VHS, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it was... It was there because you could never see it again. And I mean, especially if you were pre-cable, your chances of seeing a show were pretty, pretty rare. So at this point in time, I mean, you know, and I think that those fan communities grew organically. And now it is much, much more like a, uh, a concerted effort to get something out there. Not because there isn't any kind of incite, excitement or enthusiasm, but because people, you know, now can connect worldwide and talk about something. So even the smallest fan base or underground movement all of a sudden explodes in a matter of minutes, days, hours, weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is no, and they may put it into something like a Rocky Horror Box where we're going to get together on this one day or this one time period or you know Adam brought up the brown coats and the firefly kind of movement you know and that grew over years but you know it's like without a doubt there there's now a lot more division people can find their own camps for that cult property whereas back in the day you were just happy to find someone interested in it yeah as much as you were yeah no, and that's, you know, just one of those things that, like, as time has gone. I mean, we were talking about earlier in the preparation for this, like, what exactly, you know, ends up making, like, a cult movie, you know, as per- decided by the collective consciousness of something like Wikipedia. 
So I'm looking it up right now as we're sitting. Of course, there's a huge picture of uh, a huge Eraserhead poster on my phone now. As soon as it pops up, you know, because Eraserhead, hello. That's the cult classic. But here we, here's this is what uh, Wikipedia tells us a cult classic <laughs> is. All right. You know, Wikipedia, guys, here it is. A cult film commonly referred to as a cult classic is a film that has acquired a cult following well Well, there we go there you go go. cult films are known for their (laughs) dedicated passionate fan base so we've already hit on that a few times um an elaborate subculture that engages in repeated viewings check i think we've like talked about that a little bit quoting dialogue in audience participation you know inclusive definition allow for major studio production especially box office bombs while exclusive definitions focus more on obscure transgressive films shunned by the mainstream oh but that in of itself is pretty much the heart of this discussion is that that the the former is a cult classic and the liar is an underground gem yeah that's my. I mean, that's instantly what pops in my head, and that's what I had kind of sketched out right before we started this discussion, or and during it. Well, then we've talked a little bit about uh, what a cult classic is, and hit on a lot of the inclusive points. Well, why don't we ask Kirby, or if you have an idea, we've we've heard that definitely. What What are some movies you think are underground gems that aren't necessarily cult classics? Yeah, you know, and that's. <sighs> That's that's a that's it's like an it's an it's an easy question, but it's a hard question at the same time. Um, I wish I had my my whole collection in front of me, but um, I think some things that get considered maybe an underground gem kind of get confused with um, uh, uh, films that have been either missed on the screen for some people mm-hmm. or have a nostalgic feel to them uh something that they remember that they haven't seen in a long time i mean i always think of like uh uh, national lampoon's vacation okay huge huge success in Mm -hmm. the theater you know in caddyshack around that time you know the the big snl stars at that time well i remember seeing those films at the theater like drive-ins my parents would would take us you know and they'd have like you know the pg movies and they'd have the r movies you know it'd be up in smoke stuff like that but there's a whole segment of people who haven't seen those films on the big screen and they want to go for the experience mm-hmm. so by definition of of kind of what that's going by does bringing everybody together for the experience if they show up does that deem it a cult classic i would say it by does. default well, yeah, exactly. Just for showing it? I think so, because at that point, you know there's an... Even though that, you know, you would say like, oh, National Lampoon's Vacation came out, what, in the late 70s or early 80s? 80s. Yeah. Um, it's a movie that you wouldn't instantly think, you know, of when you're thinking of all the movies that, you know, came out in the 80s. But it's a movie that, you know, I'd really like to see that movie. You know, wouldn't it be cool to see that on a big screen? So, at that point, nostalgia does play into it. Right. You know? And it could be. It's a movie that was financially and, successful. And it was very broad. Yeah. Then you could go into something that is very niche. Mm-hmm. You're talking about, like, even, like, you know, the John Carpenter stuff. Yeah. Or even you're talking, like, you know, Howard the Duck. Yeah. Whereas something that was backed, was, you know, aimed to be successful, fell flat on its face. Everyone forgot about it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, people started, you know, either was, you know, trading it, talking about it, you know, have you seen this? And just for the fact that it's so terrible, makes it good. Because somehow, we like the underdogs. Everyone loves the underdog. Well, yeah, and I think that's even a separate category we could talk yeah. about a little right. bit. The, the so yeah. bad it's good. Yeah. It's right. definitely what I think for a long time was the gold standard of what a cult classic was that was my initial but as you and that's kind of like it's almost like i think uh, it's its own category yeah it's a natural progression because i actually would say your underground gem is your starting point it's and it builds and progresses to becoming a cult classic a lot of times especially with i think films that end up having a um or whatever i mean you can and but you can apply this to anything by the way i think cult classic largely isn't film but obviously is also in books music video games whatever but for this discussion 
I think when you say cult classic, people think, I think it's a, a shared experience like you were bringing up. I mean, mm-hmm. some that are successful, like a National Lampoon's. I mean, if you can go in a room and start talking about a film, and I think you have that shared experience, whether it was a drive-in or a movie theater. And I think the, the, the longest standing ones largely come from a time um you know i think are more in the past at least you know maybe 20 30 40 years ago and that's largely because people like i said as i mentioned kind of earlier grow around it and then they create something from it but people i if you can go in and talk about it, i was thinking of something like not exactly an apples to apples but for me a cult classic is something like weekend at bernie's okay and then to me a underground gem is necromantic like I mean, you see, can, and I would. It, it tells you how subjective it is because I would probably argue them. both of those are sort of underground gems. I mean, well, but at the time, yeah. I oh, pre- weekend at Bernie's was huge. Oh yeah, no, it huge. was, yeah, it was huge. But it was now, like alone, huge. That this is the thing that like it's you know it, technology changes and everything. It's like if you saw weekend at bernie's being played somewhere you would think it was like a cult classics type well then you can take its ugly sister mannequin yeah and you know that's even and then which also made money right and then you're also going into the whole like we're separating all these subgenres. i mean i think 80s movies is its whole in of itself anything that embodies an 80s atmosphere whether it's music or fashion or just its spirit or just the, the fact that was made in that time period even though some 80s 80s films putting up quotations air now quotes. Air, air quotes air quotes, quotes. Okay. we've done the claw and the air quotes <laughs> Um, are were actually made in maybe the late 70s or early 90s but people because especially those who were raised in that and sometimes those who weren't they they tend to think of it all in that same encapsulate in that same yeah. time period yeah and, and I, I think it's funny too like I mean I would argue like that definition you know we just read it's like it's very subjective I mean if you talk to any I would I would argue if you talk to any teenager today, you ask them to name a really popular subversive movie, they would probably one more than likely some one of them would mention Fight Club, you know, and that's a movie that when it came out, that was a gigantic box office bomb. It's a movie that became success- successful based on its DVD sales, mm-hmm. you know, and that's like, someone started talking about Fight Club. Yep. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> yeah, I won't talk about Project Mayhem or ask questions. <laughs> But to be fair, I mean that's it's a movie that now uh, you would you could see merchandise for it everywhere. I mean a lot of these uh, things that like I would have considered a super underground when I was a kid. Like I remember like Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, which was a pretty like underground comic when I was a kid. If you go into like any hot topic, there's like so much Joan and Vasquez stuff. It's like insane. You know, anything from the 80s or 90s now has just become super successful via licensing yeah. and everything. Well, and then something that just came to mind when you asked about the under, underground jam, I was still kind of churning my brain on that. The um, Six String Samurai. Yeah. Not a lot of people have seen it. Great film. Yeah, I a lot would of argue charm. it's an underground it's, You know, it's jam. a little weird, but yeah. it's, it's not anything that grew legs. I yeah. don't know a lot of people have seen it. But it's it's. But just then you can thing. even have another subset when you bring up something like Fight Club, which is a, a fantastic example. To me, it creates the subset of what I like to call the hot topic starter pack of film, which is, I mean, <laughs> somebody top- needs to make which, that I mean, a box set. By w- the way, which we can. The box set starts with Fight Club. No, Don- it start with Nightmare Before yeah, Christmas. Christmas. Yeah, that's very true. Nightmare Before Christmas, Donnie Darko, Pulp Fiction, Boondock Saints, Fight Club. And if you want to throw in, you could probably throw in a couple more there that I'm missing. But, I mean, I feel like that's the essential. Oh, the crow. The crow. You have to put the crow in there. Yeah, I would argue Boondock Saints is a movie that was completely made into whatever it is now by Hot Topic. Which is an interesting one because when Boondock Saints was released, it was a blockbuster exclusive. It was the only way you could rent it for for whatever its first year of. Oh yeah, well that was the Weinstein's fault because most mm-hmm. pretty much every Miramax movie was a blockbuster exclusive through rental. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I in my DVD collection I have like copies of Inside or you know very 
French horror film. It says blockbuster exclusive, but it was distributed by, you know, Miramax in the US. Yeah, the Miramax Dimension Extreme, I mean, that's in it. You know, you could you could even segregate that as a complete like there are people, you know, who would gravitate. I mean, that's an ultimate brand recognition of cult oh, yeah. classic or underground gem. I mean, creating some of that. I mean, a lot of DVD and um boutique labels now. I mean, that's how they operate is through their brand yeah i mean that, and you, you again if you look at the crow the crow was also very successful when it came out in theaters i would argue the crow is what popularized uh commercial movie soundtracks in the 90s because it was like one of the first films to like you know have all the songs on the soundtrack actually in the movie that it was like the number one album on billboard for, oh, the for a long time, time. Yeah. You know, almost every band on that album wasn't anything really popular when that movie first came out, and almost all of them ended up being huge, like Stone Temple Pilots and Nine Inch Nails. And there were a lot of bands on there that were like, you know, considered sort of like, you know, in under the radar kind of alternative, like you know, Helmet or My Rollins Band. My Life Cult was exactly. On that, yeah. You know. Mortal Kombat has a soundtrack like that too. I mean, oh, they yeah. put yep. Bile and Napalm Death next to Tracy Lords and like uh, Gravity Kills and stuff. And you know that, but it is. I mean, there. That's a great point on tying in, and and that's part of what also has um, risen the profile of what may be considered a cult classic or an underground gem mm-hmm. is its peripheral uh, portions. Yeah. Well, it's exactly what you were saying with the hot topic thing. I mean. Um, I mean, Donnie Darko was a movie. It, you know, it, it came out. It of was like, a movie, yes. Yeah, yeah yes. no, no. I, I was going to go somewhere with that. It was a movie that didn't do well at the box office because it came out the same week as 9 11. You know, I don't. Oh, did it? Yeah, it did. It came out that very same well, week. Because I, I don't remember it being in the theater. Oh, yeah, no. It came out. It, it had a very limited release. It was out in theaters the exact, like, two days after 9 Was it like a landmark thing? Uh, no, it was just like. Was a, it general theater? Yeah, it's general oh, okay. theater. Like it had like a, I I know uh, Flower Films produced it, but I, I can't right. remember the actual studio that actually put it out right, right now. I no, it was Artisan. It was Lionsgate. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lionsgate, Lionsgate put it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just it you know, people aren't going to want to see that the same weekend as, you know, the biggest national tragedy in history, you know? And there was no merchandise for it or anything. And there was no stars at the time. People are going, oh, good, the Gyllenhaals and oh, yeah, Malone Jane, and Jill all and them. None of these people were anything then. Right. It was like an indie art movie that came out the same week as 9-11. And basically it came out, it found something of a following on DVD. And because of that, there was a lot of licensing. And you could argue licensing that movie is what made it popular it popular enough to get a director's cut made and everything well and frank the bunny was a mascot an emblem but that's one i i want a quick cakewalk for two seconds but i think is another great example though of a new um subgenre like you were talking about film soundtracks is that cover of mad world i mean that pretty much launched is one of the first times i ever heard someone take a song and you had like the singer songwriter effect yeah and now that is i mean every television show almost every movie especially film trailers employs that i mean that is you know oh i love this song <laughs> you know i love oh i've never heard it sound like that it totally reinvented it but i mean yeah. now it's a complete cliche yeah well yeah even the director's cut of uh of donnie darko has changed a bunch of songs on the soundtrack to what he would have wanted and then here's another thing sometimes it's like studio interference can sometimes end up making a movie that might have not been anything into something that developed like a cult following you know i mean with the crow i mean brandon lee died and they had to recut the entire movie you know because he died and i remember uh when i was in law school we actually had a uh, one of the lawyers that was uh I think working on that movie uh, for Paramount or Miramax and what happened was Paramount had a contract for the crow to distribute it and they had a negative pickup deal which meant like you know you're making this movie for us and then we're going to look at it and decide if we're going to distribute it based on the final product and what ended up happening was when Brandon Lee died they decided not to pick it up but Miramax did and they had to go in and basically finish up the movie based on what was there and what's 
what happened is basically these lawyers become trustees and they decide, you know, well, what can we do with this where it makes sense? Originally, the first Crow movie was supposed to, you know, be a lot more like the sequel, actually, where Brandon Lee didn't want to go back to the underworld and he was going to have a this character called the skulk cowboy played by michael berryman from like the hills have eyes mm-hmm. he was like you have to go back boy <laughs> i've seen clips so that's my michael berryman skull cowboy. Hey, it actually sounded <laughs> yeah. a little more angus scrim to me but that's pretty <laughs> boy, good boy yeah. <laughs> you know so it became a completely different movie because of his death and that's the movie that kind of caught everybody's imagination and it, i hate the director's cut of donnie darko just to go on the record i think it's terrible <laughs> over explains way too much so much exposition so over crammed and overstuffed the theatrical version or you know the one that became popular it's just like it's vague enough that you can read into it and a lot of times that that's one of the factors that can help a movie become popular oh absolutely is what you read into the movie if you leave things that are sort of like nebulous there. and that that brings in like you know the different cuts of blade runner yeah you got the different cuts of dune it's like what you know what's what's more resonant for me i like to discover a film when i watch it for the first first time mm-hmm. i don't i don't catch everything yeah even if someone's beating me over the head and saying okay this is the person who's doing this right now for this reason i like the the movies that are more vague like 2001 even mm-hmm. same thing I, I don't need a lot of exposition. I will accept this world as long as you take me, you know, through this journey. I'll figure it out for myself. And I like having my own conclusions on things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Another thing, another factor we can get into that I think a lot of we can talk about is a lot of times what sort of makes a cult movie a cult movie is the person involved making it primarily the director. I mean, you for my example would be like, if you look at somebody like, David Lynch, you could argue David Lynch only makes cult movies. I mean, just going off of uh, what Adam was just saying, um, you know, I, I love Mulholland Drive. It's a movie that really doesn't have a linear narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lost Highway is a lot along the lines of the same kind of movie, but Mulholland Drive has very solid acting, and you could read it, it has like this sort of displaced timeline thing going on where you. The last segment of the film can be the first segment of the film, and you can kind of make up the story for yourself. And there's a lot of theories online if you go. I used to participate. Like, I know exactly what this movie's about. (laughs) You know, and that's what builds the following. Right. Well, that's also, I mean, David Lynch is the guy who also is one of the first people to bring really that outsider, non-linear style to television because Twin Peaks was a huge hit. And no one, I don't think, expected to be. I mean, that is also one of the first cult TV shows. I mean, and and sometimes it's like that's just what happens. I mean, it becomes a brand. But, I mean, I thought of, too, like, it's strange to think when we were talking about the television aspect, it was like um, a show I never grew up with at all because it happened years, but a decade before I was born, but was um, the show Dark Shadows which was originally a soap opera for its first, like, 90 episodes. Mm -hmm. And then they brought in all the supernatural, you know, effects. And then it became, you know, one of those things where all of a sudden it's it's the talk of the town. I mean, it's very, in that time period, it's very sordid. But it's also, you know, I think people crave that. They crave what's out of the ordinary. But that's, in the end, the difference between cult classics and underground gems is, is that... There, there is a limit that your general audience is going to have. And I think when it goes into the, or in that, in that is the true lapse of time is that eventually people will accept it, but it, it may, it just may be too far out for the original time period, not to detract too much. Cause I get exactly what you're saying with the, the Lynch thing. I mean, that's what people say. Hey, did you see that David Lynch film? It's a very David Lynch film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much, you know, I mean, if you were asked a descriptor, I mean, that's what it boils down to. I mean, directors, I mean, even somebody like Kubrick who makes, who's made such vastly different films, he made such vastly different films in his career, it doesn't matter because they're always Kubrick films. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's the difference between, like, a signature style and everything. I mean, I could go a different way, too, and talk about, like, you know, somebody like Alejandro Jodorowsky. And, like, you, the argument among a lot of film fans is that Jodorowsky created like the midnight movie with like 
El Topo and later the Holy Mountain. And I would argue, you know, that both those movies are underground gems, but I don't think they're cult classics because I don't, I think everyone wants to see those movies like at one point in time, like just to see them like, Oh yeah, I've always wanted to see this movie. It does have a cult following. So I guess it fits the sort of definition, but it's not a movie. I think a lot of people like hold like, Oh my God, I've seen this movie like a thousand times. Yeah. Right. You know, and it's always a movie that it's like, Oh wow, that was really interesting. You know, yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not a. His sort of stuff is not um, uh, general popcorn type. Yeah, movies. or even like Coffin Joe or something. Most of those. Most of the uh, exposure that I had to his films is when I was going to film school, mm-hmm. and it was like required watching, just because of you know the visuals, the colors, um, the abstract storytelling, um, and the themes and and everything in the kitchen sink that he was throwing into those yeah. with the humanity behind it um while while keeping a, a just a, a it's a piece of art mm-hmm. more so than a cult classic or an underground gem but that's uh that's one of the first questions i actually thought of in my head about separating a cult classic from a an underground gem is to me and this is speaking probably from a very um you know american centric viewpoint but i rarely ever see a cult classic not Oh, I mean, there's definitely plenty that are are really international films mm-hmm. that usually starts falling to underground gems because mm-hmm. either it's the art house ideal mm-hmm. where it, it's very rigid in that and that following and that audience and some come over, but generally and it depends on time period too because you know it's vastly different in 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 the eras. But I always feel that um, you know if you were to talk about an underground gem, I mean, I could say. You know, a film like um, in, you know, City of Lost Children, mm-hmm. to me, is a very much like an underground gem. Yeah, uh, I really like that movie. Also, a, a very non-linear movie in a lot of respects. But it's it's one of those things where I it's even a better way to synthesize and present it to me is it's kind of like with some of the, the discussion we just had is, is that if you were to ask an audience, which one do you prefer? El Mariachi or Desperado. And to both of those could be considered cult classics mm-hmm. and could be even almost considered underground gems because it really is uh, Eye of the Beholder or, you know, it's that kind of situation because I, I've known people who've seen Desperado, but I've met very few people who've seen El Mariachi, and I'm talking more of the general populace, not. Right my friends or associates or yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't like watch that. desperado and think that there was something that led up to that yeah you wouldn't even know el mar el mariachi existed exactly yeah um i mean and that's the other thing like when you're talking about um sort of foreign movies um for the most part like i would argue a lot of times it is based on genre i mean for like, if I looked at a, a movie like um, Ichi the Killer or any of the movies by um, that director, I, I would argue... Takashi all, Miike. Yeah, yeah, Takashi Miike. Um, they're pretty much all sort of like this, you know, cult classic kind of genre thing. Um, versus, like, something like, uh, you know, a South Korean director, like the other uh, one who did, like, um, you know, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Park Chan-wook. Park Chan-wook, yeah. yeah. That those are more like... I was trying to put the, the na- family <laughs> like name Like, who, who can name it I first? Was, <laughs> I, I was trying to look up his name on my phone and ended up dying. I'm like, oh, it's the guy who directed Snowpiercer. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> There's a good one. Do you think the remake of Old Boy will reach cult classic status at uh, some point? You know, it's... I, you know, just... You just know, a great Sidebar? Yeah. No. Um, I will say, for the most part, that was a much more like a, a, a closer remake than I thought it would be. It's it's very close to the original and um, it just kind of loses its balls in the ending which is kind of sad considering how they made the story work in a western surrounding. Um, I think the remake of Let the Right One In is much No, that's better. one of my... Yeah, one of my I really enjoyed favorite. that. Yeah. And I love Let the Right One In but Let Me too. In, it worked. Mm-hmm. It really did. Yeah. You know, I think both of those are like really strong movies. I mean, that's that's another 
thing, you know, foreign films, a lot of times just become cult classes because, you know, a lot of people don't go to see foreign films just by the nature of their very existence. It's, you know, like, oh, have you heard of this movie? No. Well, hey, they're remaking it from the original cult classic. You know, it's like, eh. You know, all that means is you've got to get out and see a little bit more foreign film, you know, in my view. But a lot of times, um, you, you, like, by that same token, is the, the girl with the dragon tattoo a cult classic? I mean, it was an insanely popular book. The original is insanely popular, mm -hmm. um, but it was just subtitled. Yeah, you Americans know? don't want to do subtitles. Yeah, that's a big part of why I was trying to postulate. Basically, to me, is is that I just don't think that's digested just a and accepted. Adjustment. Yeah, yeah, it just isn't. I mean, I think that's what keeps art house in the art house. A lot of people is is that. I mean, it's like saying, oh, you enjoyed Pan's Labyrinth or Hellboy. Have you seen Kronos or the Devil's Backbone? Yeah. I mean, Guillermo del Toro made films, has always made films the way he wanted. But, you know, when he made them in his native country and language, I think that people just did not, or history, and in the case of the Devil's Backbone, I just don't think that people for whatever reason are ready to accept that or ready to you know appreciate that yet but i mean you know it, all things change i mean and that's another way to another thing to bring up is is that i sometimes there's even a, a faction as we were kind of talking about subgenres and subsets is that i mean one thing that has stood out for me the last 25 years of my love of film almost 20 25 years has been um the criterion collection mm -hmm. and the idea of that becoming a um uh, you know mile marker for what exactly is cult a lot of time including especially resurrecting lost films like uh 1977's uh, house, house i knew you, you were know gonna say that yeah well there's <laughs> i mean but that is i mean that's a great oh, no, example yeah. of it you know no and then you know yeah house is a really good example of that because it's a movie that sort of just appeared one day and it seemed like no one had ever heard about it and uh for the most part it, it's crazy it, it, if there's ever a movie that that you know is a cult what the fuck kind of movie i mean it's one part horror movie one part chinese ghost story one part scooby-doo musical <laughs> I know and then the net rest yeah. was like this weird animated musical it's just you know so so many cross genres i mean i think it's called a clusterfuck well <laughs> i'm pretty I mean, sure you can call it that term. but then you would argue something like uh movies from the early 80s that just didn't fit the uh canon action movie uh cycle you know but sort of were marketed that way like uh i would say like buckaroo bonsai or big trouble in little china which you know if there's any two movies you could just like point out it's like you know, tell me what that movie is about <laughs> in one sentence or less. It's going to be a really weird sentence. <laughs> what do you think about, to you guys, what do you think about, um, you know, so much to me in cult classics or underground gems? Maybe, I mean, it still happens now because you brought up like Old Boy, I Saw the Devil, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, and a lot of these kinds of films is the idea of controversy. I mean, a lot of the films that to me have always been infamous um, from a more mainstream, like an Evil Dead. I mean, mainstream. I know you're going over like a Faces of Death. Yeah, or Faces of Death to something maybe like a Cannibal Holocaust. You know, where I mean, a lot of these films are so infamous. I mean, that that part is how they became a cult classic as based on um, that idea. So, I mean, it, I'm not trying to say that that is their validity or their quality as a film well but a lot it of is people based would on, say that like video yeah. nasties that just it's another the fact way. that it's they are point. video nasties is what makes them cult because they were very hard to see very hard to acquire you know and when i we say video nasties it's these uh it's usually films like it's a specific list um but movies that were banned in the uk for being too violent or too like the British Board of Film Censors and basically led by Mary Whitehouse ensured that films, um, you know, the UK has very, and a lot of other parts of the world, um, most of Europe, you know, Australia, parts of Asia, for various reasons, have very strong anti-obscenity laws. And, you know, I mean, that's probably a different conversation about obscenity versus art. But I do think the allure or the thing is, I guess what I'm uh 
positioning is that you know it's like that is to me a big part of cult classics because it's interesting i mean at least or at least a section of it because national lampoons is a cult classic Mm -hmm. but it's not particularly controversial yeah well a lot of the movies that were considered video nasties i wouldn't like argue are very like evil dead is a very mainstream film well now it's considered mainstream back then it was like harder to find oh yeah but a lot of the films on that list are just movies that you know you'd say okay that's a horror movie i don't see what's particularly obscene about like lucio fulci's zombie other than the fact that you know the special effects budget was so low they had to use like mud and actual worms on the zombies (laughs) you know and, and I mean, Cannibal Holocaust. I mean, you could argue, yeah, I can understand that they killed an actual turtle, you know, in the movie and ate it. But, Spoiler alert! Oh yeah, well, you probably wouldn't see that movie <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yeah, for the most part, or or Faces of Death, which you know is if you ever see Faces of Death, that's a movie that's power over you. I would, I would, I would say Faces of Death was a lot like The Exorcist. If you saw it while you were a kid, it probably had a lot more power over you than oh, yeah. versus when you see it as an adult and you're like, "This is fucking stupid." Well, it became it came in infamous through its uh, its shock value. Yeah, it, it built up a reputation yeah. that like overshadowed the actual. Oh no, film. I went to, I went to video update all the time mm-hmm. and was looking for it, looking for it. They would get a copy in. And what did they have? Like three of them, didn't they? Oh, they had a lot. Basically, oh, yeah. they probably there's did more than that. But I think seven, like the there first was, like, ripoffs. There's like, but I mean the first cluster. I yeah. think what there was like. I think there's like two, and then three, like a third. And then, like after four, they just kind of start. Recycling. Yeah, just yeah, just kind of yeah. Then it just turned into you know those um you know like jackass or something. Yeah. But you know, I remember going there all the time, and any time that they would get in these copies of these films that I would read, uh, you know, in in Fangoria in the back or wherever it was uh, that I was getting most of my information, the um, they they would disappear. People would steal them, yeah. just not bring them back. Well, no, and or I, they would I just be so yeah. they going, would be so totally trashed. Yeah, yeah, because I remember when I was a kid, and these had like these really garish painted artworks, which were a lot different from other movies at the video store mm-hmm. at the time. Big it, box for life. Yeah, and, and like uh, I would just look at the box, and I'm like, man, this is the the production value <laughs> on this is so low; it has to be real, like that, or like Shocking Asia specifically. Yeah. And like you could go on YouTube right now and watch Shocking Asia, and the movie is like it's it's corny. You know, it's just like basically a lot of these stereotypes realize that are not indicative of the real world at all. It's like, oh my god, they're doing tattoos with needles, ah! <laughs> you know. But it's it's it has like this kind of you know uh, orient orient in the sense of the actual sense of the word that's like oh this hidden thing that you don't know anything about it's what you call like the national geographic gears which which is really the only way you could see a lot of stuff was through national geographic i mean that was i mean you know it's it's all about i mean that's one thing that kind of we keep coming back to though is or at least i have um not intentionally but also i mean because i'm putting my myself my opinion but it is on how i was raised but in and that time period pre-internet but even now it's amazing how that maintains that there's still films people are absolutely like oh you have to see us you will not believe what happens i mean you mentioned inside yeah that was definitely like oh my god like it was i mean that and martyrs i'd say were two of the last films i was actually kind of you know taken aback by and but i mean that you know that's not the heart of a, a cult classic or an underground film and i think that's why i kind of needed to bring that up because i think you have that component too it's there's so much dissection here mm-hmm. yeah to I, get to the root i think i think as we're getting closer to being to hitting our time port here i think uh one of the main things that it comes down to accessibility i mean the more accessible something is, the more likely it is to develop a following. And at that point, you know, it becomes sort of like a cult classic in the sense of like, oh, I want to sort of relive this because it's something I remember as a child. People still talk about it because it comes on TV or whatever. 
fairly often or you have warm feelings from the licenses you bought like the stuffed animal or the action figure or the costume you wore and you want to be able to relive that so that a lot of the things that we sort of talked about in sort of negative way with the licensing is what keeps these movies sort of alive versus you know movies that came out in the early 80s that were sort of popular or were sort of genre but weren't licensable like uh, i remember there's a movie i liked a lot it was called looker Mm-hmm. It's from the early 80s, basically. It has, like, Albert Finney in it, and he's, like, a plastic surgeon. It's based on a Michael Crichton novel, of all things, that uh, he's, like, a plastic surgeon who's trying to keep models from being killed and replaced by their hologram doubles. Or even Westworld, which is, like, uh, another movie based on a Michael Crichton novel. It's, like, uh, pe- reporters or people who go to this uh, resort called Delos, and they're being replaced by the... By, uh, people are being replaced by robots it's sort of like a disneyland kind of thing you know you go there you interact with like the animatronics and then they run amok and start sort of killing people which they're making a remake yeah. of yeah exactly but basically because those things aren't Can't easily licensable that, they didn't develop sort of this cult following they just kind of became like these underground movies well nostalgia is super yeah. important in any discussion you're going to have about most of the stuff but you know one thing i thought about here to wrap it up was interesting is is that besides childhood and stuff i really thought about the cult classic underground gems thing is is that children's movies have a lot of that difference there's a lot of things that are kids movies um a never-ending story uh for me is a hugely important film in my childhood and i definitely consider that a cult classic but to me a more underground gem not too too underground but underground enough would be like the secret nim which is a much darker darker children's fable um but it is that kind of distinction where i think p a lot of people have seen secret and nim yeah but at the same time channel all the time yeah but at the same time i don't think the difference between the audience you would see for the never-ending story which is also has its has its very um you know uh, dark kind of essence as well as as a lot of those kinds of films did but they also you know i just think that uh, some people want to you know like a cult classic because it makes them feel good about their past or just makes them feel good in general or made them think but all people in the end you know they an underground gem i think is something um that yeah you have a communal experience but you hold on to for yourself and that's what makes it so important that's what makes it a gem whereas a cult classic is something that it's forever for an audience it's for a a shared experience so that's why i probably end on yeah i could get on board with that you know and that's the thing a lot of it ultimately is very subjective the movie that uh don bluth made after the secret of nim was an american tale which you could argue is probably one of the most successful heavily franchised independent hand animated movies of all time i remember getting a five plush doll at mcdonald's <laughs> so ultimately i think when it comes down to it in this sort of discussion is you know a cult classic has nostalgia the shared audience experience and you know that kind of following based irregardless of whether it was successful or not i think that's kind of the factors we look when we play movies at cult classics is you know is this a communal experience we want to really relive or let people share again versus sometimes an underground gem is you know night of the comet or night of the creeps it's a cool movie you want to see with your friends but sometimes there's not going to be a hundred people that are going to want to go see it yeah like you're saying you want to show something like you know as buckaroo bonsai Mm -hmm. or we would throw in you know different trailers for different stuff but it's it's led by the people so it does have to have you know more of a cult following Mm-hmm. If if you think of the people that are drinking the, the the poison grape juice, you know, waiting for the 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 UFOs to come or whatever, uh, in their in their compounds, mm-hmm. I mean that's a cult. They have a, a group of people who are who are following that. I mean, Buckaroo Banzai does, but it's it's a little bit more esoteric. Yeah. Well, and so it's a gem. And like you said, I mean, I think both you, you know, encapsulated the the differential between those two yeah and as we're running out of time here i think we're gonna hit everybody up on our panels like what's one cult classic or underground gem rather that is a little unsung you maybe like to tell people to check out in under 30 seconds yeah Yeah, and then point at me oh i'm always so bad at just picking those out of the air um 
boy oh boy oh boy oh boy oh boy oh you go first victor uh since then you have to do the wrap up afterwards it'll come full circle all right well i'll say uh under 30 seconds uh i would say hey everybody go check out buggery bonsai nuclear physicist turned superhero kirby you know, I'm always going to go horror, horror, and there's so many, and it, like Adam said, it's just extremely difficult. But, you know, on its anniversary right now, and just because I've really reconnected with it, I've got to say The Exorcist 3. The Exorcist being my favorite film of all time, uh, kind of like Victor said, where it's really scary when you're a kid, and it still is frightening. But, man, The Exorcist 3 scares the hell out of me still. <laughs> so, go check it out. Uh, well, and talking about like anniversaries and stuff that's been uh, uh, resurfacing, they have the Cabal cut of Nightbreed, which th- you finally get to see Clyde Barker's uh, vision with the with the footage that he did uh, finally have available to him. So um, I guess it's getting harder and harder to find a copy of that. I know they're trying to make more copies to um satisfy the masses uh but hopefully you know it even sounds like that even might lead to a tv series you know there's a little more interest in it they didn't know that there was so much interest and and that's very exciting for me all right well this has been the first edition of cult following i'm victor marino kirby nelson adam rutkowski and hopefully we'll see you next time for another simulating conversation on a film related topic <laughs> in the meantime check us out at cultclassicsaz.com and we'll let you know where this will pop up soon all right so see ya I- intro music for cult following is courtesy of musician john mapes Check out his collection of music at johnmapes.com. Thanks for listening.